0: You are listening to another edition of March Madman," the podcast that means to prove what is the greatest haunted house film of all time. Tonight, we have Mike Flanagan's Oculus on the slab, ready for a thorough but loving autopsy. It's the final entry in our ferocious four, as we're one step away from crowning a winner and closing this competition for the season. I am John Evans and I am joined as always by the Timbo and Kaylee to my grotesque cow, Vic Wheat and Rich Eckersley. How you doing tonight, gentlemen?
1: Pretty good, John. It's nice that you finally acknowledge your, your, your grotesqueness. Uh, I feel like we've made some progress over the over the months. Oh, I, I think you did
0: the right a, mirror to look into.
2: I was, I was proud of him to to notice the cow like nature of his uh, of his personality.
1: <laughs> <laughs> something, there is something very bovine about you,
2: John.
0: <laughs> I've heard that before, but now it's all really after seeing Oculus. It's it's come home in in a deeper, more personal way. So, guys, this is it, man. Our final loving autopsy. Are you as excited as I am?
1: You know, I am, John, and I just want to say, as, because, because we're getting down to this, having done these, these last four films in such detail, uh, watching them now several times over the last couple of months, really has made me appreciate that whatever the process that got us here, whatever the maybe changes we would make in the rankings, or certainly some upsets that we all have some feelings about, I feel like we we probably arrived at the four best films. I'm really excited to talk about this one, but I feel like the the process has has not let us down, really. I think we've got four really strong films here, and I'm excited to talk about this last one.
0: Rich, how do you feel about the process? This
2: is honestly like the end of of a marathon. It seems like we trained a lot for it, You know, we we worked hard for nearly a a year to to make this process work. And now we're in that last leg. You know, we pissed ourselves. Our legs don't work. We're questioning why we ever did this to begin with. We just (laughs) wanted to be fucking over. (laughs) You know, uh, Rich,
0: I've seen people do worse than piss themselves during a marathon. I've run six of them.
2: There you go. Well well here you go, man. The the finishing tape is within our sights. So uh let's break through it.
0: I'm shitting myself tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, well said, well said. Yeah, this is a big moment and I'm really eager to get into this particular film. And I agree, Vic, when you said that we've we've found four extremely strong candidates and as we've kind of already started to think about the next step of the process and how do we sort out the final 4 and which film are each of us going to choose to be the winner i have to say it's it's not easy and that's exactly what i want you know i did not want to come to the final 4 and feel like somebody one of these films was in way over its head and didn't belong and and no i mean i've i've come to appreciate these movies even more the farther they've they've come and i think that's the the greatest testament to their strength as films and what they contribute to the haunted house genre so, yeah, I think the process has been proven to work. I mean it better after all the hours we put into it right so <laughs>
2: <laughs> i I agree i don 't even think that that 's idle banter i mean it's it 's easy at this point to sort like of like you know like play out the uh the decision making of it but even as I was watching this movie tonight, I feel like I really enjoyed it last time, but still there were things i caught this time that I felt like maybe I was even selling it a little short last time I watched it. So I feel like each of these, every time you watch it gains a little more standing. My,
1: my only real regret is that paranormal activity three did not make.
2: Oh, the final four.
0: You know, the fact that the orphanage and paranormal activity three aren't in the final four just means that you're going to have to wait a little bit longer for your host, uh, John Evans to end up in a rubber room banging his head on the wall, screaming and attempting to gnaw off his own arms.
1: It, it wasn't me. It was Paranormal Activity 3. It was, <laughs> it was the movie.
0: It was the movie. <laughs> uh, that's a little flash forward to the end of Oculus. So, in a sense... Uh, without further ado, let's open a beverage. Uh, we, we we rarely call out our, our first drink, but we're actually all on camera tonight and get to see each other's work. And this is nothing new, but I'm going to pop open a Sierra Nevada celebration, the Fresh Hop IPA. I am using a Starship Enterprise um, bottle opener, which my father-in-law gave to me because he didn't want it. But whatever. It's a nice gift. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I roll. I've got a rocks glass full of Chardonnay to uh, to get things kicked off before I move on to a mid-session beer and a, a nightcap of
0: bourbon. Very nice. Rich, you are a man with uh, a plan. Let's put it that way. It's not the plan I would choose, but it's definitely uh, a plan.
1: Uh, I have a Dragon's Milk bourbon barrel aged stout, which That's... I have previously opened, but is is delicious. I'm, I'm probably about... A third of the way through that, and you may start to notice.
0: You've consumed a gallon or two of Dragon's Milk in the course of this podcast, I would say.
1: It's, it's true. That's I've noticed as I listen back to the podcast that I need to start mixing up my beer descriptions because I keep describing them as if I've never talked about them before.
0: <laughs> oh, you know, editing the show definitely has its uh, epiphanies. Let's put it yeah. that way. But that's enough preamble for now. Let's dive right into this movie, and luckily... Due to the the magic of Amazon, we can have a little watch party here and watch the film together and all sort of guide us through. And hopefully the listeners will not be uh, mystified as we go scene by scene through Mike Flanagan's Oculus.
1: Worth noting, as we watch the seven minutes of uh, opening <laughs> production company videos, that WWE is one of the producers on this, which I, I always found very strange. They actually bought one of my screenplays a while ago, and this was one of the things that made me not feel queasy about it.
0: Yeah, they have a they have a solid history.
1: Of non-wrestling related.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, they uh, definitely branched out from the, the obvious choices.
2: I do have sort of a, a top-line question here, mm-hmm. which is, The movie's called Oculus. Um, The name is never uttered in the the course of the film. Uh, Does anyone know that it's not entomology, is it? Yeah, yeah. Etymology, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Etymology, yeah. Uh, Entomology is the study of insects. But yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's a good question. I know if you Google Oculus, you're just going to get a lot of virtual reality stuff. So I, I don't know of a really established tradition or definition for the word that would that would help us here i mean obviously seeing is is what this movie is all about and the illusion of um what you see so i think that and the connection to the mirror is sort of implied but um i don't have a a quick answer for that no
1: what i this actually came up in some of my research by somebody who's mystified by it and when reading it, it sort of was obvious to me, an Oculus is a round opening, usually in a, a dome or something. But so the idea that this mirror is not simply a flat surface, but an opening to something else, I think is, is the, the reference.
0: Well, it certainly is a portal of sorts, right? I mean, yeah, between times and dimensions and places because, right, right. All of these spirits that come to end up inhabiting this house are purely going through the mirror as a gateway. They have no relationship with this house whatsoever.
2: This all thinly veiled, like sexual subtext. I mean, Vic is Mm -hmm. giving us the information, so I assume so. Yeah, it's a round opening,
1: Rich. I think you you, could put two and two together there. I didn't want to say balloon knot, but I
2: feel like you guys get where I'm going with this.
0: (laughs) It's very vaginal.
2: (laughs) Well, speaking of openings, let's talk about the first scene in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Transition there, (laughs) folks.
0: Man, I, I, I relinquish my host duties right now. Rich, take it away. Yeah. Um, No, this is like uh, the movie begins with a a dream, which we don't know is a dream yet, but initially it sets up as this memory, as we'll see, of the two kids, our our leads, our protagonists, in the midst, in the very height of their uh, traumatic night of horror that culminates the experiences we're going to get through flashbacks throughout the film and it's they're they're running around they're menaced by their father who has gone insane and has a gun in his hand and we do get a clear phantom the the character that um gosh what is she called well Marisol, we'll...
2: Marisol correct
0: Marisol yeah thank you guys thank you guys
2: played by, a, played by a Flanagan's wife
0: oh yeah. oh yeah interesting so yes this this uh, Ghost Marisol, who we'll see quite a bit, and, and has a major role to play in destroying this family. And uh, she appears here to Timmy, little little Timbo, and Kaylee, his sister, has to cover his mouth when he cries out, but it's too late because Dad hears it, and he comes around the stairs with the gun, and they're cornered up against the front door of this uh the foyer and he puts aims the gun right at his daughter here. And we get one of the first of many blurring of lines between time and, and space and realities and memory and the present and dreams, actually. All of them are are being played with pretty artfully by Mike Flanagan here. As it's not the dad, but Tim, the adult Tim, the young adult Tim that we'll see Soon enough, who's pointing the gun and fires it. And we learn suddenly, cutting out of this, that he's in a treatment session with his doctor at the mental institution. The first thing that that strikes me here is that it foreshadows that he kills his sister, because that's what the dream means. Like, it's him holding the gun, not his father. He pulled the trigger. And in some way, the takeaway here is that in the dream... He's responsible for his sister's death, and again, at this point in the process, we hope to God you've seen the fucking movie, he does kind of end up, in a way, killing his sister.
1: I also think this is an effective opening, as you said, John, for the the way that it it introduces this idea that realities are going to be blurred, and it's going to transition from here into – for sort of the first act, maybe the first half of the film – what feels like a very defined transition between the present and the flashbacks. And then those are going to get blurred more and more as they go. And so it's like they're giving you a hint of that here in this first scene. I also like that they get you get the phantom, right? It's we want you to see that there is going to be a supernatural element to this. And just the fact that you're watching it, you don't know it's a dream the first time you see it. The fact that that trigger gets pulled on you know, a 12 a year old girl is brutal. And that was something that I was struck by watching this. Uh, now I, I don't know if this is my fourth or fifth time watching it. This is a brutal sit. Like it is, there's, there's family dynamics and there's drama and there's, uh, you know, supernatural elements, but there are also scenes that really are right up there with, you know, a saw film for the, just the visceral impact of them. And that's, they're letting you know, this is not going to be a, this is not going to be a cakewalk. This isn't Lake Mungo. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Jack?
0: <laughs> Lake Mungo, cakewalk. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you are right. Like I, I have this in a couple other points in the movie. This is the most horrific, I think of, of all of his films.
0: Definitely. Um, definitely. It, it
2: goes to the darkest places, um, that that I can think of. I mean, like Gerald's game certainly has some some moments, but the opening does have a lot of the movie's strengths on display. I mean, John, you mentioned the foreshadowing and that, that kind of gets to one of the, the bigger things I think in this movie, that's interesting. And we hit on last time we talked about it, which is I talked to people about this movie. I kept recommending it as we were going through this process and people kept coming back to me and saying that it was predictable. And I'm like, yeah, it's predictable. Like they're telling you the ending from like minute one, Like, they are, like, telegraphing exactly what happens in this film. And that is – it's bold filmmaking that is sort of daring you to continue watching and and pick apart what's interesting about this, even when we're telling you where the story is going. But it
0: takes Um, a lot of twists and turns. Like, I would not call this a movie where you're just kind of, yeah, obviously it's all preordained and we just want to see how clever we get to that destination. I mean, this movie – really uh, throws so many left turns and uppercuts and out of nowhere, much, you know, things are much worse than they appear and, and it it plays games with the audience. I'm really surprised that people would, would use the word predictable with the film personally. I
2: think this is just a good example of like, this is a movie that, that practices that, you know, it's not the destination. It's the journey sort of thing. It's like they they already they, they kind of telegraph where it's going, but it's how you get there that makes it fascinating. Well, in, in
1: just in terms of this competition, this film I would not describe as predictable as compared to The Conjuring or Insidious or any other film that Patrick Wilson course. Made.
0: <laughs> yes. in the patrick wilson oeuvre this is not predictable yeah Yeah. if if he were in this movie it probably would have to be because it's in his contract but fortunately it is not he is not this sequence definitely sets up that this kid has been in an institution and he's about to get out because he's worked through and his doctor has clearly helped him. And I like this transition transitions in this movie are fantastic. I mean, some of them are very abrupt, but some of them are very elegant and smooth. And this one is where the doctor's dialogue continues mid sentence from talking to Tim personally, or uh, the two of them rather to um, the board hearing or whatever to get him released.
2: Sort of mid sentence too. Yeah. It's, it's- it's I mean it's it's well written in that regard. Like these transitions are clearly written into the story and it's well edited, which I if I believe he's also Flanagan's also the editor on this, if I'm not mistaken.
0: It's great. It's very, very skillful. Oh, I wanna um highlight something. I'm gonna pause it on this. The look on Tim's face when he basically hears that he's he's getting out is so wonderfully complex like that little nervous nervous smile there i i love that like he's getting released and he's a little nervous about it and he's not totally sure that that he's ready but but there's a, an innocence to this guy like there's nothing about him that really makes you feel like he's got a hidden agenda or anything like that like his performance throughout the film is very earnest and likable I think, but vulnerable at the same time.
1: I liked his performance more this time. And I also think what's worth noting, we're going to find out pretty soon that he had, had asked not to see his sister anymore, that she would try to come visit him and he wouldn't let her in. And I think that's some of the anxiety that you're seeing is he knows when he gets out, he's going to have to confront his sister and, and And her her
0: swaying ponytail
2: and her swaying ponytail, tick tock, tick tock. (laughs) Look, I, got, I got to say that the shot of her walking down this hallway with the swinging ponytail, like as, as an introduction, like actually when, when you say Oculus, this is the shot that immediately comes to mind. <laughs> um, I love that it has, it has the houseplants uh, going all the way down the hallway as, as well. I feel like a, a lot of takes were done of this ponytail and they, they fucking nailed it.
0: Yes, yes, they did. Uh, It's a dynamic shot. So uh, it says that this next item for auction, she works at an auction house, does Kaylee. She's grown up now, the little girl that we've been talking about. They're selling this gorgeous antique mirror recovered from the Levesque estate. And this is one of those little threads that doesn't pay off here but in the oculus verse it made me wonder does the Levesque estate where the mirror has resided for the past decade does it have a story perhaps i would guess that it does and if it doesn't why not
1: i actually came across some reference to this Levesque, this is this is one of the only impacts of wwe that you will find in this Levesque is the uh, given last name of the wrestler known as Triple H.
0: Hmm. I, hmm. I don't
1: know what that. I don't know what that. I don't know what that means. I don't think that adds anything to the film.
0: But that's like uh, that. that's like the board being made by Parker Brothers in Ouija, yeah. <laughs> or Milton Bradley or whatever it was.
2: <laughs> yeah. Has Triple H killed anyone? Because that would be a story.
0: You know, maybe he's the next uh, episode of uh, last podcast on the left. Who knows? They'll cover that. But uh, no, don't want to besmirch him.
1: Sorry, Triple
2: H. You're a (laughs) a large man. We did not (laughs) mean to imply that you were a murderer. Yes. I'd like to be a guest on the podcast.
0: (laughs) While acknowledging you could kill me, um, nonetheless... Yeah, no, I'm just, you know what I'm going with this. Like, this mirror always has a story wherever it goes. Like, it didn't eat anybody at the Levesque State. I don't know. But, uh, you know, there's no indication of that.
1: We're also meeting her fiancé. Fiancé? Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I, I believe it is. I believe it is.
1: That's her fiancé. Mm-hmm. He's a very bland actor, and I don't care very much for his performance. But I had this thought this time. I, stop me if we talked about this before. Did she... Only get with him like her life's quest has been this mirror. Now she just happens to work at an auction house with this guy who is helping her to acquire it, even in this sort of transitional capacity where she can just abscond with it for a few days. Is she only with him as a means to an end? Because I don't see any genuine passion between them. That could be a function of his performance. Or, but I'm wondering if maybe there's something deliberate about that.
2: I mean, it doesn't seem like she would have to engage him to um, to get this close to the mirror. But uh, it's, I mean, it's an interesting theory. I definitely think that they're deliberately leaving something on the table in terms of how she got this close to the mirror. It's believable. Uh, I didn't. I didn't necessarily associate her engaging this guy with with getting there, though. I, I assume she kind of put in the work herself. You know, I like to believe that that women have agency, Vic. And that they can get themselves into positions of power on their own volition. They don't need a man to get there.
0: Oh, Vic, you are served, my friend.
1: I I deserve that, Rich, and I apologize to all of our all of our women
0: listeners. You're <laughs> right.
1: I guess what I would say is that there there is something about her relationship with him that doesn't seem very genuine.
0: I'm going to run with that as we go through the film. So um, to be continued on that point. But right. I, I don't think you're completely off base here, despite the fact that you need to get way more woke like ASAP. Okay, so um, it's spent several seasons adorning a Scottish home of the royal family. Uh, we don't get any drama about that either. Um, no no kills occurred there, apparently. No, I, I thought
2: that they pop up in her uh, her monologue later.
0: The Scottish royalty? Well, maybe.
2: It we'll keep an eye on for it we get some good uh design details here it's mm-hmm. carved in black peter, a fine wood especially for uh for for displaying in one's home what do you guys think about the the aesthetics like the design of the mirror that, like that's a pretty big choice for this film yes. one of my one of my my thoughts on it is
1: that i kind of didn't believe that dad would buy that for his home office
0: uh, we're going to get to that scene. We can kind of talk about the sort of justification that is provided by the film. I will say the fact that they start the bidding at 10000 and it goes for 16000 not that I throw around that kind of money on antiques myself, that's not a huge sum of money if you're wealthy, right?
2: Wrong crowd. None yeah. of us know.
0: Yeah. it it struck me as somewhat humorous in a weird way that like this incredibly powerful mirror that has been around for centuries and killed all these people and is the subject, you know, of this hoity toity auction and it goes for 16 K. I don't know. Like it, it, it's not an overwhelming amount of money, but uh, looking at the carving and everything, I think it's, yeah, it, it is quite striking.
1: Could be one of those things that was hanging in somebody's house, and they didn't realize that it was, you know, four hundred years old and used to adorn the royal family's house. You know what I mean? There's always somebody that's got a Monet in their attic that they didn't know was
2: there. It's like it's like curly and, and gothic. It's it's menacing without being like, striking to like the average viewer. Like I think if you went into this like not knowing it was a haunted mirror, like mm-hmm. you might think. A little dark. It certainly feels like it has history.
0: The mirror um, looks it's, clouded,
2: doesn't it? It's well, it's, well, sure. It's a mirror. It's got a. It's, it's tarnished. That can yeah. be cleaned off. I have another podcast about cleaning mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can plug it at the end of the show. But well, um,
0: I like that yeah. she's framed right in the middle of the reflection.
2: It's a good
1: shot, and interestingly, or maybe not. I don't know. This could be dumb, but I believe that the the myth of vampires not being reflected in mirrors is because they were, they were originally backed by silver.
0: Oh, interesting. That's
1: why they said that vampires couldn't see their reflections in them, but Mm -hmm. that would explain the tarnishing on uh, a very old mirror like this.
0: By the way, I believe a lot of cuckoo clocks are made out of Bavarian black cedar for, (laughs) for just throwing out random factoids.
1: (laughs) Well, as I said, that could be dumb. It's all right.
0: <laughs> um, I'm doing a haunted uh, artifact novel, and I have a cuckoo clock made out of Bavarian black cedar, and something of a of a a nod to this, uh, you know, cursed items kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, look at it in this frame; like it's it's definitely a big, bold piece of objet d'art to have in your house. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I love the haunted like obsessed look in Kaylee's uh face as she watches this auction transpire. She's yeah, think, on a mission
2: that's definitely her her default look for the entire movie and i i don't mean I don't mean that as a strike against her. I think she does a great performance, but that is uh sort of where she is baselines.
0: She's a very driven character she's a an obsessed character. there's no doubt about it yeah she's to a fault she has this thing that she, she must do.
2: It is
1: her
0: white whale. So he's being uh, checked out of the mental institution, and we get this notion that Kaylee was not treated all of these years, and she may be a threat to, to Tim's recovery for that reason. And, of course, we sort of see that play out.
1: Well, when you talk about the the themes of the film in terms of what's real and what isn't, being able to identify what constitutes reality in the way that that gets blurry, especially in the, the context of the mirror, they're really laying solid groundwork here. One of the strengths of this movie, even having seen it a few times, is that we get to a scene where Tim is going to try to convince Kaylee that this is all in her imagination. And he's really convincing. And part of the reason he's so convincing is that they lay this groundwork here that feels very organic in terms of the story.
0: So which one of you guys bought the mirror? Because apparently it was somebody on Skype, and that's how we're doing the podcast. So the winning bid.
1: Skype's into an auction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess it's somebody in another country I, I think this is a weird uh, little beat that I want to note that when the kid is leaving the institution, he doesn't know what to do when the door buzzes and the guards like son, just pull the door or when it buzzes. Like he's been institutionalized for half of his life and he, he, he has trouble with the door leaving. Cause I guess they didn't have these 10 years ago or, you know, he was a 10 year old, but it's just a fun, you know, very easily missed beat.
2: I caught that as well. That was a nice little like directorial detail.
1: I watched a, uh, a, a scene that was cut from the film when he goes and, and buys a cell phone, and it's incredibly. awkward. It's a very a very pretty girl that's selling him the phone, and she's asking him all this stuff about what he wants. You know, do you want data, text messaging, this, that, and the other? And you can see that he doesn't know what any of that stuff is. And then she asks him, you know, okay, well, we just need to run a credit check, and uh, you know, do you have a couple of pay stubs or you know something? And he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't have any of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, really so kind of getting into what it would be like to be institutionalized from the age of 10 to 20, right? And how, what a hole that puts you in. You're practically coming out of a bunker.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think you're able to cut that scene because you really get that from that moment when he doesn't know what to do when the door buzzes.
0: Which is brilliant. I mean, it, you, you you get that across in seven and a half seconds instead of a two-minute scene. So. Yeah. I want to call attention to something else here um, where I'm, I've i frozen this. It's interesting that he's come out of the institution and his sister is waiting for him in the parking lot and she's out of focus at first. And I'm not sure that this is technically necessary as in like a limitation of the lens. It's obviously a, a choice because we're going to sharpen the frame and everything is going to be in focus behind her for a really long time distance. So it's not a depth of field thing. It's, it's a choice. And I don't completely know why, but look how long she's out of focus as he approaches her. And then she coalesces and you see in his face, he has like a unmitigated happiness to see her, whatever his fears about his recovery or trepidation about what may happen from here. I think this tells you that their relationship is rock solid
2: the shot itself like reads in terms of like that, that idea of him emerging from the institution and, and not having seen her for so long it, it sort of mimics the way that I think one feels when they when they wake up from like a deep sleep right where it takes a moment for like the world to kind of come into focus and and you also get you're getting that delayed reaction from him too where it's like he's absorbing the fact that she's even there for a beat it's not super obviously motivated but I think it also reads pretty well.
0: That's as good an interpretation as I can come up with. I just I, I like that it's clearly purposeful and it's having some effect. And I I think that that I think that you you got it. She's hugging him. It's a happy, fierce hug. And as Vic alluded to earlier, we we might at different points think that she's manipulative moving forward in the movie. But I think this is the kind of beat, and there are several, that tell you I don't think that we could say it's all an act or something like that. She's not so driven and so obsessed with her, her white whale that she's just going through motions here or something.
2: Yeah, I, I never really get the vibe that she's super manipulative later on, she'll, so she'll keep giving him the option to, to leave and walk away. And I kind of believe her when she says that. I mean, we can look at it when it when it happens, but... It seems to me that she wants him to be involved, but she also genuinely is going to move ahead with this plan no matter what.
0: I'm going to flag like several things that don't paint her in in the best light as we move forward. And that definitely seem like she's pulling some strings here and she definitely has an agenda that transcends just concern for what's best for him. But I mean, I think that, yeah, it's not as, as easy or as uncomplicated or one-dimensional as she's a femme fatale in some way, and she's just putting on an act to get him to do what she needs him to do. I think that that's obvious. And we see that they're having lunch now in this fancy restaurant. Money is definitely not an issue. This is not an El Pollo Loco here. But I guess What's, the art world pays well.
1: John, I'm not going to listen to you besmirch the delicious food at El Pollo Loco, right?
0: <laughs> hey, I, I'm a sucker for cheap food. So also in this scene, we get that uh, he 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 can't look her in the eye when he admits it, but he tells her that he didn't want to see her when he was in the institution. It wasn't the doctors that wouldn't allow her to visit him. It was his choice.
2: This is almost a beat that could have been left unsaid. It, it felt like a, an uncomfortable bit of exposition to me. It could have been made more clear in a subtle way. But I also appreciate her reaction
1: to it. She says, it's okay. You're my family. You're out. That's that's what matters. It really does speak to the, the strength of the relationship. And I think that that feeds off of what we see of them as kids. I feel like their interactions as kids as they go through this very traumatic event really builds up that connection And I do feel like we're, we're seeing that now in these early scenes that they still have this connection.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that they were told by Flanagan very definitively what their relationship and their feelings are for one another and at whatever, however many layers this film has some real ambiguity or deception between these two feigned feeling feigned intimacy is not one of them. They're very much good pure loving siblings who despite what they've gone through like they, i don't think their relationship is all that complex which i, I don't, i'm not saying that's bad at all i actually think in a movie with so many mind fucks it's it's kind of nice that these two really come from a earnest place of unconditional love
2: that's a, that's a good way of putting it it's a, it does seem like all the relationships in this movie get tested except for the two of them Yep, the, their relationship is really the
1: rock that the that the movie is built on, and if their affection for one another feels genuine, then we're going to care about them, and that's going to to invest us in the film. And I think that that works.
0: This is why I think it's Flanagan's best film. In a nutshell, is that it has the the heart and the humanity which is evidenced by what we're talking about. But it also has like so much darkness that it's in perfect balance.
1: Here, the heart and the humanity are in the characters, but not in the story. Exactly.
0: Exactly, Vic. Yeah. And and that's why I don't want to be negative, but I'm not sure I'm going to like anything he does more than I like this movie just because of the way he seems to be trending. But who knows? He's a young enough guy. He's going to have many, many periods to, uh, both build on and undermine what he's done before in interesting ways. Now I pause it on this moment where she's just said, I found it. And I, I want you guys to look at his face here. We've frozen it where he's in a, he's in a good place where they've connected and he's like, he, he's happy to be there and watch as this realization really hits him. What she just said that she's found the mirror.
1: No, his his performance really is good.
0: I Googled um Bremen because she says it was in storage part of an estate collection in Bremen. Um I got something like there was a TV show involving Bremen that came out the same year. But I, I think this might be a subtitles error or something, but I have I was not able to figure out where Bremen is, if that's in in fact the place. But that's where she got the mirror. And she says that it took her a year and a half to get it into the warehouse and now it's sold, but you know, they're gonna have a few days to take this thing, to keep their promise, and prove that their their father did not just go crazy to redeem their family name, to redeem his name, and prove that the, the mirror was the bad guy and to kill the mirror, which is a very heroic thing but it struck me watching this that it's such an odd coincidence that he would be released from the institution at the same time that she has this window in time that she's going to be alone with the lasser glass it feels like there's either some forces at work here or it's really dumb luck with the fortuitous timing
2: well or or perhaps she sort of manipulated it to to play out that way yeah but but she says she just
0: found it like a week ago right
2: well, and it sounds like his his dream was really
1: the catalyst for his release.
0: Which is also sort of uh, supernatural. Actually, so, no. She says it took a, her a year and a half to get it into the warehouse, uh, is what she says. So, yeah, on her end, it's been a long time in, in coming. But, yeah, he's being released. He has that dream, which, as Vic pointed out, why do you have a dream at a certain point in time? But... There's a correlation of forces and timing and events that lead this movie to happen, and it, yeah. yeah, what is the hand of fate here, or a different hand, a darker hand? I don't know. And of course, we invoke the idea that they have a promise that they they made to each other that they need to keep.
2: I like the promise and the the, the weight it sort of like carries that you you revisit at the at the end of the movie. It's one of the, the main things I made several notes along the way where this movie I feel like has echoes of it. Hmm. I, made
1: the, I made the exact same note and for the exact same reason, that it is this juxtaposition of childhood trauma and, and adults and how they deal with it. I also wonder, just as something maybe to track as we go through it, I found myself wondering, the mirror seems to have only consumed adults as victims, and there's no explanation or sort of rhyme or reason for that. But if you if you were to make the case that maybe the mirror manipulated Tim's dreams in order to get him released at this time, uh, and again, maybe it was Kaylee. I think you could I think you could make that case too. The movie doesn't offer anything by way of explanation for that coincidence, but it does raise the question. What effect did the mirror actually have on them as kids? Like does it do anything? Is it manipulating them it, or, or, or infecting them somehow? It only really seems to have an effect uh, as we see them as, as grown-ups. As kids, they don't seem to be vulnerable to its seduction.
2: It's very interesting, Vic. You're totally right.
0: Yeah, it's not working a game with them as kids. It's not showing them things the way it shows their parents, right? And the way that it shows them when, they, when they're grown up. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I do have a lot of notes about sort of what varies between and, and what the cases have in common. It's one of the more interesting things about the MO. And this thing has an MO that is all over the place, as as we'll find. So this is our first cutaway to the past, uh, since the open, the dream open. And now though, we're just kind of seeing how the mirror came into their lives in the first place when they're moving into this new house and the kids are playing laser tag and dad is already working. He's fielding phone calls while the kids are running around and the movers and he's, he says he's slammed and he's... On a call with maybe a already disgruntled potential client, and his son comes up and you know says something ridiculous to him, asking about where where Kaylee is, and the dad handles it with aplomb. He's not losing his mind. His wife shows up and is asking where does the mirror go. He's still on the call. They both know. Everyone should know he's potentially on a business call. Nobody cares. They interrupt him, but he's fine with it. And I think this is a great point A as we see where he goes from here but point a is he's a patient and understanding father even in a pretty annoying situation
2: you pretty quickly established that like this family has a has a good energy about it um, their relationships are are solid like the the foundation here is pretty good to to begin with uh, so you're given something to, to chip apart
0: much uh, the opposite of the shining you might argue
2: yeah, no, it's a good point. It's interesting and, and and telling that you know this this movie again puts a lot of trust in in the viewer or at least a lot of faith in their abilities as storytellers. That they they give you a, a note in a small lower third at the beginning here that that says eleven years earlier, and that's the only time they're ever going to point out to you what the what the that we are that we have changed time frames. Um, it's the only time that they directly tell you that. After this, you're you're sort of on your own to piece it together. There's a a sort of a cliche of
1: moving into a new house as the premise for a haunted house film, except the house is not haunted, the mirror's haunted. And so the fact that they move into this new house is, is almost an extraneous detail. He could just as simply have bought the mirror and this have just been the house that they've been living in all this time. I wonder what the motivation is to have them moving into a new house.
0: I actually was sort of randomly thinking about, like, where where does this movie fit in as literally a haunted house movie? And part of my thought was that this is what makes the house haunted. The house isn't haunted until they come back later. But then it definitely is. And any house that this mirror comes into just brings the ghosts with them and thus becomes a haunted house. So, strictly speaking... It is a haunted house movie, but it's more like you open the box of ghosts and they inhabit the house.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. But so my point is if they don't just move into this house, how does that change the story?
0: I don't think it matters at all. I mean, yeah.
1: Exactly. That's what I mean. Is It seems it sort of extraneous except that haunted house movies often begin with families moving into new houses.
0: I'm trying to think like if they get any mileage out of that. Other, I think the, the justification was just, as we get with some dialogue between the couple here, which I think we're about to watch, they're sort of stepping up in some sense. I get the feeling that, professionally speaking, he's going out on his own, but he's going out on his own from sort of a position of success. And so she said something about wanting antiques and he just kind of, he's, he's cocky and confident. He's talking about like, I'm going to smooth things over with a three piece vanity set. Like, I think they're flush at this point. And that's sort of the idea is that he's just kind of randomly buying shit. That would, that's the justification.
1: I guess that's it. Yeah. It does sort of speak to where they're at financially. And it it does suggest that things are, things are looking up for them.
0: That's the idea.
1: Moving, moving in the right direction.
0: And, and if you already have a fully furnished home, then it's like, well, we have to get rid of whatever was already there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe we're servicing genre cliches, which I think you're sort of implying. And I think that's, that's certainly possible, but then also it just kind of makes it a little more believable that they would be, Bringing in lots of new stuff if they're you know going from a smaller place to a bigger place and reimagining their living space versus yeah. uh, just being where they've always lived.
2: What does it really add to put the characters in, the, in that space? Because you're right, Vic, They This movie could be about a, a guy who gets flushed with cash and he's out antique shopping and he stumbles upon a, a fancy mirror in a in a strange you know, gift shop in Chinatown. Also, back for the Mogwai. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what does it really give you to be in the new house? I'd say that there's like an, an excitement of like exploration of, of like new spaces, but I you don't really get much of that like joy out of like the kids exploring that new space. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of
0: that. I mean, it definitely doesn't ever play any games with like, well, maybe it is the house or something like that. You know, there's no sleight of hand or subterfuge involving the house being haunted before that they bring in the mirror. Like, there's always no doubt in this movie, the mirror is what you have to worry about.
2: I guess there's something about like you're you're getting a bit of like a clean clean slate, right? You're like you're meeting these people at a good point in their life, and they're getting like a fresh start in like the most positive of, of ways. So it's like everything is really looking up for them at this at this point. Yeah, yeah. He,
0: he literally says, listen, we got a new home, a new company, so we get new furniture. And she goes, makes sense. And it's also a way to get into her neuroses, which is huge. Her insecurities, at least. Maybe it's not a neuroses until later. He's talking about new, new, new. And he's stepping up in the world, right? He's got more money. He's going out in business uh, for himself from a position of success, and she's feeling threatened right here before the mirror's done a goddamn thing. She says self-consciously, you know, he says new furniture, and she's like, same old wife. And then he says, well, I told you I was fine with the Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, her response is like very much relating that to herself. I'm not Ikea. <laughs> Kidding. Like-
1: my only question is, is is Katie Sackhoff really the one to be self-conscious in this relationship?
0: This is definitely Katie Sackhoff still within range of the height of her powers. So, uh I
1: I'm, I'm mostly kidding. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. if I was Rory Cochrane, I I might be a little more anxious about, uh, you know, hitting the gym or something.
0: No <laughs> doubt.
2: But <laughs> make that's... a believable, a believable couple. I actually think she mm-hmm. plays like a, in terms of like what I know her for. Like I think she plays a pretty good domesticated like wife and mother in, in this film. It yeah. feels very natural for her in a way that I wouldn't necessarily uh, pin her for. You,
0: yeah, I mean, mean this is not a glamorous role.
2: <laughs> you mean the way she guzzles red wine at dinner, Rich? Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's basically it.
0: <laughs> this is definitely a role where she's being a normal person and, and someone that could, could definitely feel past the, the zenith of her, of her attractiveness and everything. And, and, and that's not always a role that, that hot actresses like to play. So, I mean, I think it's great that she's, she's capturing it very believably at a, at a pretty young age at this point. So that's acting anyway. Now we cut back to this motel room where he's insisted uh Tim has that he's not going to I guess off-screen he's not going to stay at his sister's house instead he's trying to keep a distance and this is kind of what I'm talking about guys as you'll see with her working her I don't I don't know if it's magic or just you know just wearing him down she's going to use a lot of techniques cuz initially he wants to steer really clear. And you're just going to see inch by inch. She, she reels him into her, her plan. And, but initially like she's just getting him set up in the motel room and, you know, she's sort of talking shit about it, but respecting it. And now look, she walks out and she's going to leave. And then she just pauses. She just stops. And she has to say, you promised me you'd never forget what happened. You promised. And he says, I was 10 years old. She basically lays on the line what her plan is, what she's doing, and she needs this help. And it's very it's very honest and earnest, and they have that intimacy and that connection. It's hard to say no. Well,
1: and it's hard to say, too, how much of that is, is consciously manipulative and how much of it is, like we talked about, that promise was a really meaningful promise. That's, that promise mm-hmm. has been the driving force in her life up to this point.
0: Absolutely. I mean – that that's a very good point that he had made a commitment that maybe he's uh reneging on, perhaps.
1: Exactly. She's followed she spent all these years following through on it and has suddenly found Tim unwilling to hold up his end of it, basically.
0: I still obviously get major guilt vibes coming from her though, you know, with this request. Like she is she is guilting him hard. And real quick, there was a hard cut back to this scene from the past and i think that that was important because it's establishing how we're going to be surprising the audience with sharp transitions in this film that aren't going to be some transitions we're not going to ease you into at all in fact they're going to be intentionally disorienting i I think we were talking about earlier from the from the dream on Vic, when you were talking about uh pointing the gun and potentially yeah blowing a, a a a child, a a girl's head off in the open, the movie is tenderizing us, you know, like pounding a slab of beef. We are being prepared for each of these jarring and unpleasant things, but the movie is constantly laying the groundwork for the next difficult or disorienting thing. And that's part of why I think if you're open to it and, you're okay with being played like a fiddle. Like I, I, I think the movie absolutely lives up to the rules that it establishes and plays fair by those rules.
1: Well, and it's going to spend a lot of dialogue in the the first half of the film. It's a very, the the first half, especially is very dialogue heavy. Mm -hmm. Establishing these themes of, well, can you tell what's real and what's and what's not? And I, I forget what uh, Tim's phrases. We'll, we'll get to it. But like fuzzy, fuzzy impressions that your brain fills in these gaps, and you don't know what you saw. And then we're going to start to see some flashbacks that maybe are real and maybe aren't. But they're going to they're going to start off by by laying it all out in dialogue that somehow maintains a, a, a real engagement. It, it maintains the tension. You don't forget you're watching a horror film while they go through this. Some of that involves the dream sequences and the, the tension between the flashbacks and the hard cuts. But what the movie's then going to do is demonstrate that. Once they're done talking about it, then they're going to do it, and you're going to see memories blurring and reality shifting and not being able to tell what's real and what's not. I really appreciate that. That they they're they're going to they're going to lay the groundwork for you here so that they can pay it off really in the in the style and the
2: editing and the filmmaking and the storytelling. I noticed that we we essentially spend the first 45 minutes of this movie just establishing rules.
0: Mhm. Yeah, 100%. You guys are both right. And at this point we're 10 minutes and 34 seconds into the film and so much has already been laid out that this is how this is going to work. And you know, not necessarily like in a take the audience by the hand and comfortingly establish them within the rules of the of the world, but more preparing you to be off balance, which I think is perfect for this the game that the movie 's playing and I want to call attention to he 's staring into a mirror here, and sometimes we get transitions that are more kind of classically artful or logical as we cut from that to his mother in the past staring into a mirror and dealing with her insecurities about her body, namely this caesarean section scar that she has uh, that must have been when she had Tim 10 years earlier. And the mirror apparently is calling, drawing her attention to it. Back to the idea of transitions. What a wonderful, abrupt transition where she's, she's talking about it being more noticeable and her husband says, hey, let me take a look at it. And bam, one <laughs> transition to sort of a post-sex moment. It's so abrupt that it takes you off guard. And it's another indicator of the health of this couple's relationship at this point before the mirror exerts its influence.
1: How did you guys feel about the C section element of her character? I understand that she's it reflects that she has a lot of anxiety or feelings about her body, especially as presumably she's getting older and these kinds of things. It works in that regard, but I also felt like we get it mentioned once essentially to set up the the payoff at the end. I mean I wondered I wondered if there if there could have been more about Maybe Tim was a really difficult childbirth, and or or something to give it, you know, one more one more scene of or one more hint of why that was something that was really haunting her.
2: I don't I don't know. I, I kind of like the thing that I think John picked up on, which is that it's it's more about the way that the the mirror. Entrances like all people with sort of like fascinations of like yourself, like self analysis, and what is it that she would be thinking about when looking in a in a mirror? And it's like the the way that it magnifies your your own doubt and like distorts your sense of reality, like even about yourself. That's like maybe like more powerful than than getting into narrative backstory.
0: I tend to agree with Rich on that one, Vic, because I think that we very clearly get that she's going to have insecurities about her body and her age and being sort of replaced by someone else. So exactly why or how, or, you know, she's not a focal character really. Part of why we know that is that we don't actually get to see her delusions. Like we see various points where we can assume the mirror is showing her specific things where she's totally zoning out, but the movie doesn't show us that. And I think that that's kind of – that the kids have the privileged relationship, and I think it would, it would sort of break down the integrity of that if we went, went any deeper into her. We get enough glimpses to understand what the game the mirror is playing with her, but she would have her own story, basically, if we were privy to that.
1: I think that's a good point. I, I once took a bunch of acid and stared at myself in the mirror till I saw myself at, like, 60. So I, I think I see where she's coming from. How'd you hold up? Not not well, Rich. It was not a good night for me. (laughs) You
0: you didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, huh? Uh -huh.
1: I I believe that was the last time I did acid.
0: I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I still did mushrooms a few times. (laughs) Now he goes after sex to raid the fridge, and he grabs a nice little juice box. There's not a lot in there, even pre like the world going to hell in this family. They don't have a lot of shit in their fridge. And we're about to get the first appearance after he, he he trips and his patience is starting to fray, potentially. He trips over a box and then he sees her Marisol for the first time, just a glimpse. And then she disappears. But he's not overly upset.
1: I feel like Flanagan does those ghosts in their appearances really well. Mm hmm. It's such a difficult line to walk when you're, when you're,
0: yeah, (laughs) he spills the drink on himself is what we're laughing about.
1: Covered himself with juice, which I sympathize with. I, it's such a fine line to walk when you're trying to make those visuals work in a horror film. And I feel like so many directors either hold the shot for too long or there's, I don't think there's even a stinger there when he sees her, right? No. What do you want? There's no stinger. So it's, he trusts that image. Just to be on there for a second, he leaves it just long enough for you to, to get it, sort of understand, and then it's and then it's gone, and it's it's really he has a marvelous feel for that. He has it in in The Haunting of Hill House and Ouija and, uh, Weeja or Evil as well. Mm-hmm. I,
2: I, I will say, Vic, you, I think that you're a hundred percent right. And then what's equally interesting is that what he follows it up with is a very long, lingering shot of just the mirror, like mm-hmm. you do. To to
0: just ponder that. Yes, yeah, that like nothing happens in that shot. Remember, I think Vic was talking about with Ouija that there's always a ghost in the background or something of these shots, and that's one of his signatures. I don't even think that's the game he's playing. I mean, we could go back and look at it, but I think it really is just kind of attaching the significance of what's happening. To the mirror, and and that's it. There are no spooks and specters hiding in the background of that shot, probably.
1: Like we've said about this film in, in terms of Flanagan's filmography, this is a horror film. And he's not, he's not screwing around with it. He's yeah, going to let you know yeah. early on there's a supernatural component to it. The first one we saw was just a dream. This one is, within the, the context of the film, reality.
0: But, but that's a very blurry line in this movie. Like That's yeah. one of the first games that the, the film plays is reality is extremely up for grabs and subjective and cannot be trusted in this movie. One of the games that a viewer could play is watching stuff that appears to happen and say, okay, what really happened here? Because that's not what we're actually seeing. We're seeing the subjective experience, the perspective of the people in it and not what really happened. For instance, Kaylee gets out of bed, she's at her fiance's apartment where they're apartment together. She appears to wake up, leave the room wearing a pretty uh, attractive little nighty, and she goes down the hall and she's looking around and suddenly guess what? Something is amiss. She's back in her father's office in the old house.
1: The dad says when when they first move in He says, I don't know if I like the desk there. And the desk is actually on the other side of the room.
0: That's funny. But I think this is another one of those marker sequences that is softening up the audience to the idea of impermeable connections between realities. Because she goes into the past, uh, or very permeable rather, not impermeable. The barriers are very easily passed through. She goes into the past as an adult and we break down the barrier between the timelines even a bit more Granted, this is a dream, but it's it's preparing the audience for that facility that we're going to have as the story goes in fre- frequently, more and more frequently between past and present.
2: So, John, you point out that, you know, she has like this little like nightdress on.
0: Yes, I did point and, that out. And it's lovely.
2: And if you if you want to find out whether or not Karen Gillen made the haunted house genres hottest girls list. You're going to need to tune into the next podcast.
0: (laughs) Yes, indeed. But this would be one of the evidences submitted for consideration if she were to be nominated. (laughs) Let's just say she's showing a lot of leg. It's nice. But she comes up to the mirror, and this is another one of the recurring motifs of the film, is somebody practically leaning on this mirror. She just is inches three four inches tops away from the mirror and we're going to see that happen with her and various other characters and usually it's going to be consequential in some way
2: well it it kind of hits on a in in a variety of ways throughout this film like it hits a a particular niche of the haunted house genre which is the seductive version of Yes. The kind that doesn't repel you, but actually draws you in, and, and that's its power. And it's interesting how many different ways it, it employs that, that seductive nature, um, depending on who it's dealing with. But I didn't feel like a whole lot of the films that we looked at took that angle. I, I do feel like we saw it before, but I'm, I'm struggling to, to come up with another one. I mean,
0: I think The Shining is the most obvious one the shining is the classic jack torrance is seduced by his ego and his sense of identity and purpose being propped up by the fantasy that the hotel gives him this movie there's clear parallels as we go forward to the shining with the father in this it just handles it differently but i think the parallels are pretty obvious
1: well and the fact that that this far into the movie, we've already referenced both it and the shining really suggests how much Stephen King has influenced Mike Flanagan as a yeah. filmmaker and why he became such a natural choice for stuff like Gerald's game and Dr. Sleep.
0: I think you're totally pointing out the obvious there, Vic, but I it didn't actually occur to me. So yeah, I mean, at this moment, of, of course. Yeah. He's a devotee of, of the King as most of us are at this point we get a really great shock scare. I think this movie has some great jump scares and this is this is one of them that's not cheap and it's just very disturbing because it's a jolt. The fact that it's her own father strangling her mercilessly is bleak shit.
1: There's a lot of strangling. For for, mm-hmm.
2: for our sake there should be a drinking game. We all need to drink every time someone gets strangled in this movie.
0: Yeah. Yep. That's that is 100%. I noticed that the MO of the sort of possessedy ghosty people is strangling. You were talking earlier, Vic, about the the boyfriend's fiance's performance. I don't have any problems with it really, either in writing characterization or in performance. I like how patient and understanding he is here. I think it's pretty convincing. And we get that waking up screaming is not an uncommon occurrence for Kaylee.
1: She's really convincing. I I found actually when she wakes up sort of thrashing around, feeling like she's, she's being choked. She really sells that moment. And I think that's another, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cliched, like people waking up screaming in horror films. So you, you really have to sell that to make it work. My take on his performance is it is like someone said, we want you to, look and sound and behave like Clark Kent. He's just as blandly appealing
2: as Christopher Reeve. He's a little, he's just, he's a little flat. Yeah. And John, you, you, you make a good point that he is incredibly tolerant of her weirdness.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yes, he is. I mean, this scene that we're watching right now, Basically, what happens is she prints out all of these incredibly graphic autopsy photos that she's going to use in her presentation to her brother in the next scene. And here we get the very clear sense that her fiance is also her boss, which is a good thing for her right now because printing out pictures like that at work would probably be a terminatable offense in a lot of workplaces. But. Yeah, not in your Wait, job.
1: I'm going to test that out, John. I want to, I want to see if that's a fireable
0: event. I don't want to work anywhere where it is, but the reality is that it is in some places. And her boss slash fiance is totally positive and and casual about it, which is is great. But then again, she's also in a serious workplace relationship with her supervisor which brings up many questions beginning with like how and when they got together. That can be a little dicey to say the least. However, I think it, the really juicy thing about them is that she doesn't have an entirely intimate relationship with this guy though. I think his name is Michael. She doesn't let him in on what's really going on here, what her plan is. And I think if he was her spouse she probably would, right? Instead, she kind of gives him vague assurances, even if they're well-intentioned, that this is all going to be over soon. And I wonder if it has anything to do with his ultimate fate in this movie, which is he dies. And I think as we look about at it, that might end up being true. At least if he was in on the plan, I don't think he would die as ignominiously as he As he ends up doing that being said, this is a really fucked up plan that she has devised because it involves their workplace and their company. And it's understandable that she would have to keep it from her boss, considering the loyalty that going along with this would demand of him. And I do wonder if they didn't work together or if maybe he was her subordinate instead of her boss, maybe would she tell him? And I think that she would.
2: John, I really appreciate the, your level of concern for the professional ethics of this uh relationship and its implications
0: it just kind of has to do with again like her being manipulative honestly is why it's interesting to me is is like the amount of of concern that she has for his career and her career and possibly legal fallout of this and even as we'll see i think even her best case scenario was not going to be great for anybody unless she becomes like a huge celebrity and proves that this mirror was evil and exonerates her family and all of that good stuff otherwise this fantasy is not going to end well
1: you can see she's lying to him right now yeah She's lying about where the mirror's going. She's lying about what the buyer wanted done with it. I also wonder if uh, Patrick Wilson just wasn't
2: available to play the, <laughs> the bland. He's too uh, old. Too old.
0: Kind of a Patrick Bateman thing, really.
2: I think that the the fact that they work together, I am willing to write off as a, as a element of like narrative economy. This story is so predicated based on her profession. It just saves you like scene work to put them in the same workspace.
0: I mean, I think it also, though, it helps her get away with this, that, like, the person who should be suspicious of all this is in her pocket, in a way.
1: itself to my theory that she has instigated this relationship as a way of facilitating the acquisition of the mirror.
0: I mean, that's Vic. What I like about her performance and her characterization is that I think there's room for both interpretations in that like i think we get glimpses of really i wouldn't say machiavellian but like she's playing chess here when you look at like if all went well where her relationship with that guy is going to be at the end of this weekend is not necessarily going to be great yeah but she doesn't care no. she has a larger purpose
1: now this scene for me so we've we've come up to the scene where they're in the the warehouse and the mirror's in there. This scene is where the movie really kicks off for me. Yes.
0: Me too, man. Yeah, this is, uh, I believe, in our earlier months ago um, when we covered highlight sequence. I think this was my h- original highlight sequence. And, of course, we're talking about where she goes in and to she's looking at the mirror with a the guy who's going to package it up and move it for her ostensibly you know she's made up a story about how it's gonna go get some repairs before it goes to the buyer the mirror is dominating the room but behind her there's some statues with sheets on them which works on two levels one it's an auction house there are statues of course sure but on the other they're traditional images of ghosts and flanagan is about to have a lot of fun with that idea Figures. You can't,
1: you can't tell, uh, but the shorter one is actually Casey Affleck.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, brings <Yeah. laughs> back. And, and an uncredited cameo.
0: <laughs> he knows how to wear a sheet. So look at these great camera shots too. Such great framings and stuff of positioning her in the mirror. Even
2: the shot of her from the from the rear is basically the shot from the previous dream sequence.
0: That's right.
2: That's right. I think think they keep repeating the same motif every time they approach the mirror.
0: Wow. Yeah. Good call. That's very interesting. And I also like that. She's bantering with her nemesis here. Basically she says, are you hungry? Or she says, you must be hungry. Very much like treating it like a person or a living thing or a conscious thing at, at any rate.
1: Which I think it is. I mean, that's part, yeah. of, part of what I love is the way that the mirror develops as a character. And a lot of it has to do with how she interacts with it directly. I love the dialogue in this scene. I find it very effective. And especially when she gets down to the crack in the mirror and says, I hope this hurts you every day. Yeah. Like it's, this, is, this is maybe the first scene where we see her being truly genuine in the film. This is this is who she is. This is what she's been hiding, certainly from her fiance uh, and to a certain extent, I think, from Tim. Probably part of the tension in their relationship is that she's wanted someone that she can express this stuff to and that Tim doesn't want to hear it is very hard for her.
0: Right. But I mean, it's impossible for most people to understand. Like, but, but she has that rare insight that 99.9% of characters in these movies lack that she's almost this, this is, I think as, as a rich said, you know, like it's the white whale and their adversaries and she's, she's talking to her old rival and she wants to she wants to defeat it in in fair combat essentially and that's a dynamic you do not see in haunted house movies
1: it's like it's like de niro and pacino in the coffee shop in
0: heat exactly exactly and i love it that's a wonderful thing yeah she says i hope it still hurts and she's just like she's she's a badass and then she sees the third figure uh, move like suddenly in the reflection there's three statues and one of them the third one moves
1: the, the mirror's retaliating, right? She's talking smack. The mirror begins to fuck with her almost immediately.
0: I, I think we're going to find as we go forward that she's out of her weight class. She's battling Mike Tyson. She never really even fully understands just how badass it is because this thing is cruel. It's like Mike Tyson often would knock you out in 13 seconds. This would be like Mike Tyson makes you think you're going to win in the sixth and seventh round while hurting you the entire time. And then finally in round 11, he starts to like damage all of your body parts. But if it's a 15 round, I guess they don't have 15 round fights anymore. But you know, like he would, he would prolong it to the last 10 seconds of the 15th round before he actually knocks you out just because he's that cruel.
1: For our listeners mm-hmm. under twenty-five, Mike Tyson used to be a boxer.
0: Oh Jesus! If you don't know who Mike Tyson is, fuck y'all.
1: Which, which was a sport that people used to engage in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's like the archetype of badasses yeah. in that yeah. in that not, field.
1: Not just in a, uh, a cameo in the Hangover films,
0: <laughs> or a great video game character. Fun chat. Yeah. If you're under
2: 15, the hangover films was a series of movies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, didn't he have an adult swim show, like an animated show? Like that's probably the frame of reference at this yeah. point.
1: I'm not going to lie. I watched the, uh, the, the cinema sins, everything wrong with Oculus in 15 minutes. And their take on this sequence was very funny. As she's, she's getting ready to pull the sheets off of the statues. And, uh-huh. uh, she she jerks it off, and they go, Ah, Socrates! <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. But there's a couple games going on here. Like, alright, first we had the, the third figure that doesn't seem to exist was the one that moved, and then it's the other two that move after that. Now, like in real life, as she goes to investigate, there is a third figure, quote-unquote, for real. At least there, it seems to be. And... She has to know, right, as she's pulling the sheets off these statues, that it's like ghost roulette here that one of these two statues isn't real. She knows on some level that there's only two here. And the third one is going to be dot 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 not a statue. I mean, there's so much dread associated with that. I, I that's why I love this scene, is that she knows and we know that one of these three, when she pulls off the sheet, it's not going to be fucking Socrates.
1: Well, the mirror slow plays these kinds of delusions, I feel like, with other with everyone else. And the fact that within 10 seconds of her being alone in a room with it, it's able to manipulate reality to the point where she's now seeing a third statue that might not be there is pretty significant. It, again, it, it suggests that maybe the mirror did infect her to some degree, or it it still had some connection to her from her childhood.
0: Well, I mean, I think the idea is that reality is meaningless with this thing. You can't trust your own eyes at any point in the presence of the mirror. I don't know, like we could get into, you know, our kids immune as we started to play with or what kind of a relationship it needs with you in order to do that or how many, you know, rads in terms of radiation, ghost radiation you need to be exposed to. I don't even necessarily care. I just know that the rules, as we've been talking about, are that there never was a third statue. And if you remember that, you're going to start to see how all of this works, that there's a consistency in the mythology where there's always an illusion. It's just, what is the illusion? And is the illusion hiding something that is real or is it completely manufacturing something that isn't there at all? And yeah, here we clearly see that the third statue is gone once the other worker shows up.
2: Well, and I I love that she, you know, she, she, the, the worker shows up, she looks away, she looks back, and the and the, the shrouded figure has disappeared. Yes. And uh, Kaylee is pleased. Like she's happy. Like it's it's clearly operating. It's still
1: there. She smirks at the mirror, right? Yeah. I knew it. And then she says I'll see you at home, which is which is just so great.
0: Yeah, I mean she This is exactly what she wants at this point as she's talking to the mirror and everything is that, again, with her plan, you're about to see she leaves a paper trail. Her whole plan is to destroy the mirror. She's signing forms. She's going to go down for this. Like her name is on everything. Once it all comes to light that this mirror has been destroyed and whose custody was it in and all of that best case scenario. She's out of her job. Her fiance is betrayed and humiliated. And that's her plan folks. If everything goes well and she's even determined to rope in her brother too, but she thinks that the, the ends will justify the means.
1: You also really get a sense for how confident she is right now. Yeah. I mean, it borders on arrogance. She knows she, she thinks she knows what she's getting into and that she's got the upper hand, even though the mirror just manipulated her as easily as it did.
0: Okay. Well, first off on that point, I see a weird correlation between this and an Agatha Christie novel or Sherlock Holmes or Poirot, like one of these detectives who finds the serial killer or the murderer at any rate, who nobody else could identify. And they're the one who's so clever that at the end of the day, they're the, the person who pieced together what no one else, no other investigator or, or law enforcement could ever do. That's who she thinks she is.
1: And then, of course, she turns around and is is now manipulating her brother into coming.
0: Exactly. That, I, that's actually why I paused it here, because look at this. This is one of the more sort of manipulative beats when you look at her, her acting and and her line read and everything that's going on. When she calls her brother right after that, he just wants to talk to her because he didn't like, obviously, the way they left it. And she says, no, you know, come to the house. That's not where he wants to go.
1: I love this because you're going to get the dead plant.
0: And then we cut to the dead plants at the, in the past.
1: Exactly.
2: It's another one Mm -hmm. of these great missions.
0: Wow, Vic, that's a, that's a good call.
2: Especially before they've explained what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The effect before the cause.
0: I understand, like, how shitty the mom must feel, like, seeing her plants die like that. It's another way to sort of break her down. And it's the first time we see living things being drained here. And we go from here to a critical dinner scene, I believe. Actually, it's Dad on the phone. Um oh yeah these whispers that he starts hearing whispers and i don't know man like i upgraded my tv recently and i think it even decodes sound better i don't know why that would account for subtitles but the several times we've seen this movie previously and this is scene isn't a good example cuz you don't know exactly what was said by the whispers but this this watch was the first time that i actually got the dialogue that the whispers were saying.
1: Really? Yeah. I, yeah. I've never heard that. And we're also coming up. So Kaylee and, and uh, Tim, and I love that they have this running game that they play.
0: Laser tag ish thing. Mm-hmm. A laser
1: tag ish thing. She winds up looking through the window and seeing what looks like a woman massaging dad's shoulders. And it's a really, it's a really well shot thing because you can't quite tell. Maybe it could be mom. Maybe it isn't.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, it looks like mom, but I mean we can kind of assume it isn't. Yeah. And this is one of the legitimately Machiavellian chess move twists that the that the house that the mirror does is that cuz that has a significant effect what we're about to see. And now we're to the dinner scene that I had referenced earlier. But we kind of begin with Dad chewing his his nails. And this is one of the signposts on the road that he's taking, making the turn from Normalcy Road onto Jack Torrance Drive. (laughs) That's the neighborhood we're touring already. His patience is fraying. The guy that we met previously is no longer the guy that he is.
1: I also just want to say that if a, if a haunted house was looking to seduce me, a good shoulder rub is a, a good place to start.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I'd rather hear that than um, vague implications of my responsibility to correct my family members, right?
1: Yeah. Even, maybe even more than the naked woman in the bathtub. A good shoulder rub, would really, uh, that would really get my attention.
0: Maybe if the naked woman hadn't turned into a disgusting, rotting hag, but I'm with you for the most part. Yeah.
2: It's coming on a little strong. Well,
0: I mean, I think we talked about, I think it's funny that the, the Overlook can't even, like, keep its straight face. Like, it has to fuck with him. Even while it's trying to seduce him, it still makes fun of him and, you know, has to pull a prank on him. I like ghosts that pull pranks that are, like, just... They can't totally do the mephistophelian bargain. they have to like it breaks down and they're like i just I just love terrifying the shit out of you. Sorry, 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 you know that's that's the vibe that the overlook has. Kaylee calls her mom by her her first name, which parents love, just kidding um,
2: I think it's interesting that the the mom refers to the daughter as fruit of my loins
0: yes yeah that's,
2: strange. that's crazy to use with your child yep.
0: <laughs> but at this point like kaylee mentions the woman in the office completely innocently and this is the very beginning of a pretty long narrative road where the mom goes down the path of uh suspicion and guilt and jealousy but At this point, like, she's totally casual about it. She's like, yeah, Dad, who was that lady in your office today? But you can tell it's casual for her. And he's still coming from a point of being innocent,
1: right? Yes. There's there's something unconvincing about his response. Like, I can see why his reaction arouses her suspicions a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. good it's a good scene because you don't come out of that with mom feeling satisfied that of course there was no woman in the office it leaves this little just this little hint of doubt that really stems from the 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 pause and the performance
0: no absolutely i mean it's not like open and shut that that it didn't happen in fact we pretty much know that it did but i guess what i'm saying like this is one of the tricky things i'm actually writing something like this in my book and it's very tricky what does it look like if you actually showed the scenes with that woman? Is she like, oh, hi, yeah, uh, I'm your neighbor, and I just stopped by, and I'd like to give you a massage. You know, like, it doesn't make sense, right? There's no way in a real-world application he could fit that into some sane view of what's happening. You know, like, that has to be in his mind, just a fantasy or a dream or something, right? Like, it's not like he, oh, I'm actually having an affair with this neighbor or something. You see where I'm going? Like, it does not make sense at all. There's no way. Is is he
1: even aware of the woman's actual presence at that point? Right. Like, is is the mirror just revealing itself to Kaylee in order to stir up this drama between mom and dad?
0: I mean, we do know later we see him writing her name and stuff. So in some way, he is li- literally being seduced by yeah. this phantom. But how how do you reconcile that with the the fact that they live in this house and they live in this neighborhood and like who who is she to him? Does he know he's fucking a ghost? <laughs> or
2: I'd say like 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 going back to like the, the shining parallel. I think of like Jack going into the bar, right? You know. He goes in there, and like what he steps into is completely implausible in terms of the the reality he's familiar with, but he just accepts it that's the seduction that's the power to draw you in is that there is no there is no jarring moment there is no understanding that, that what you're seeing doesn't make any sense like you just accept it and and go with it because you want to
0: I think There's the shining t- does a really good job of psychologically explaining why under those circumstances, he would do that. I don't think this movie does. I think this movie is cheating it. I'm not really saying this is a huge, you know, criticism or anything, but I think this movie is just like, don't pay any attention to that rather than giving us any kind of somewhat believable. I mean, Jack Torrance was an alcoholic, completely isolated for months who was, you know, desperate for, some fantasy escape from the lack of gratification that he was experiencing. That's not the case here.
1: Jack Torrance was an easy lay.
0: Right. Right. For For a ghost. ghost. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. I I think that I think the difference is that the shining really is Jack's movie, whereas this is really Kaylee and Tim's movie. And so we're getting their perception of it. Which is which just doesn't have that level of detail. And again, I can't stress this enough. If she's got good, strong hands, and a ghost just shows up and starts rubbing my shoulders, I I got no questions. I don't know who she is. I don't care where she came from. Maybe
0: maybe all she said at first was, uh, "Didn't you order a massage?"
1: <laughs> That's actually like a little lower, a little lower. That's it. Yeah. All right, guys, can we uh, can we break for
0: a refresher? You know, Vic, uh, you read my fucking mind. all right well that's an hour and a half of oculus talk under your belt let's go ahead and take that break together see you all next time for the conclusion of this loving autopsy for now get your ghost massages or keep a firm grip on reality the choice is yours adios